0: Drake fans, our favorite level boy is coming to town, and I know you want tickets. Well, the GameTime app has you covered. Couldn't get past those crazy ticket queues? GameTime has incredible last-minute deals and the lowest price guaranteed. And you can see the view from your seat right on your phone. Score last-minute tickets for the It's All a Blur tour today. Both new and existing GameTime users can use code BLUR for $20 off. That's B-L-U-R for $20 off Drake tickets for all GameTime users. Terms apply.
1: It's time to expect more from urgent care, like best in class providers, award winning centers, convenient community locations, virtual visits and save your spot convenience and easy access to local specialty care. If you need it, you'll get more than you expect and exactly what you need.
0: Northwell Health Go Health Urgent Care. Welcome to a new era in urgent care.
2: Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast, sponsored by The Nation magazine. I'm Dave Zirin. We got a great pod this week. Let's get to it. Welcome to Edge of Sports, the TV show only on the Real News Network. I'm Dave Zirin, and we have an amazing show this week. My goosebumps have goosebumps. Allow me to explain. One of my favorite TV shows of the last year, was HBO's Winning Time. It was a dramatic reenactment of the wildly entertaining story behind the fast-breaking, hard-partying Los Angeles Lakers teams of the 1980s, the team of Magic Johnson, Pat Riley, and the man in the middle, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Now the coaches, executives, and players from back then all hated Winning Time. They said that the warts and all drama was rife with exaggerations, caricatures, and untruths. But the public loved it, the critics loved it, and you know what? I loved it too. And the breakout star of the show was Solomon Hughes, who had the extremely difficult task of playing the iconic Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Portraying the very poker-faced, deeply intelligent Kareem would prove difficult for any actor. But for Solomon Hughes, who played hoops for four years at Cal Berkeley while earning multiple degrees. It was also his first acting job. It is a wild story, and we have him here today on the Edge of Sports. But that's not all. I also have some choice words about Oakland, the Oakland days, and the imminent move of this iconic, iconic baseball team to the great city of Oakland. And I'm talking to a frontline sports scholar, one of the best in the biz, brilliant, brilliant stuff here, Dr. Amira Rose Davis. But first, let's talk to the man in the middle, Solomon Hughes. Solomon Hughes, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Oh my goodness, Uh, I have so many questions and I'm gonna start with the one I think probably my listeners are wondering right now after that introduction I just gave you. (laughs) Sir, you never acted before. You Uh, have a PhD. How did you even hear they were casting for Winning Time? Did you think you'd get the part? How how did this happen for you?
3: Man, you know, know, it's like we hear this from our parents and they talk about the power and importance of relationships and it was, two former teammates from Cal, one who has been acting for about 20 years, Robbie Jones, and another who I was roommates with, Francisco Elson, who played with the Spurs, played in NBA for a number of years, and now lives in the the Netherlands. So Francisco, uh, they'd been doing a search for a number of months, and a casting agent reached out to him. Francisco wasn't interested in in auditioning, but he suggested me, and so... Hmm. uh, Robbie calls me up and says just so you know Francisco suggested you to as as someone who can you know audition for this part and so I did the self-tape and you know for me it was it was just fun it was like a fun experience I didn't really think too much of it like I was like you know this, this is an HBO show there's no way this is going to work out but I'm going to have fun digging in and <laughs> you know and 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 recording these scenes and so I sent in the self-tape and then about four days later, I found out that they were gonna fly me down to LA to do an in-person audition in front of all the producers and um, writers and and that was crazy. But, you know, I just, it was like one of those things where like you've gone this far, just lay it all, leave it all out there and and see what happens. And and then a week after that, I found out I got the part and it was, yeah, mind blowing for sure. So, um, you know, I tell people that I've film and TV and theater have had a huge impact on me personally. So I feel like I've always, like, I've, I've, I've had my eye on this industry just as, as a huge fan. And so I feel like getting the opportunity to step into it has just been an enormous blessing. So.
2: Amazing. I mean, I, and I want to talk to you about acting, about your process. But sure. yeah. first, the question that sprung to my mind immediately uh, when I learned about your academic background is, okay, he, here's a guy who played center at the highest collegiate level uh here's a guy with serious academic chops and before you ever heard of winning time did anyone ever tell you that just by virtue of being a cerebral academic focused basketball player the man in the middle a center did anyone ever say to you wow you're kind of like a kareem abdul jabbar Uh,
3: you know there was at least I, i can remember two occasions one was when I was playing because I shot a jump hook, which is not mm. no, not nearly as graceful as the sky hook, but it is very, very effective. And I, I I led the Pac-12 in field goal percentage, you know, specifically because I was shooting the shot. And so I think, you know, I'd I, I'd hear people kind of make that comparison there. Um, but I, you know, I also think, you know, my dad is someone who was a huge fan of Kareem and really mm. influenced by Kareem as well. And so I think, you know, I think, essentially trying to like emulate my father. I was in in a lot of ways emulating the legacy that Kareem had, has left for so many of us. So
2: what what was your uh Kareem knowledge base before getting this role?
3: So I thought I thought I knew just about everything. You know, growing up in Southern California, watching the Lakers in the eighties, I really thought I knew just about everything. Um I his autobiography was one of the first big books that I read growing up. Oh and, me too. Yeah, <laughs> right. It was it was so great. And so um but you know, he's he's written a few books about himself. He had that beautiful documentary, uh, Minority of One. So kind of getting into those, I just feel like it just really blew open the doors in terms of like, there was so much more about his life. I mean, I what I found, what I really in, enjoyed learning about was just like his time in New York, all of the different things that influenced him, you know, music, um, uh, uh, civil rights, uh, black American rights, et cetera, all of those things, just how you know, his, his passion around journalism, those things were like incredibly uh, fun to like uncover and and learn about. Um, So, so I would say that my, my knowledge base was, was bigger than the average fan, but Korean is like an ocean. So I I feel like there's just, I feel like I've only just dipped my toes, you know, and and the great thing about him, it's like his, his legacy continues. He's still writing books. He's still, you know, he's still producing, um, putting out media that's, that, you know, kind of that that brings history to the fold, to the front, to the, you know, brings history um, into the conversation in a really entertaining and, and engaging way.
2: Wow. Um, how familiar were you with that history of the 1960s, of the activist athlete? And sure. in that tone, uh, I gotta ask, like there there's some amazing books by your bedside. As Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on Winning Time, you right. got Huey right. Newton, Absolutely. you got uh, the Quran, you've got right. um, other books that are so strongly of the moment. Uh, right. Right. So, h- how much of that history did you walk in? Like, okay, yeah. I'm going to play this because I'm familiar with right. with that moment.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Similarly, you know, it was. I think so. My 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 father grew up in the South, and at a pretty young age, he moved to California, but you know just having a legacy of family who are from the south who uh experienced jim crow segregation and then when they came to california experienced a different kind of racism right where it's not necessarily it's 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 not all the markings of what you experienced in the south but it was definitely present and so i think my dad was was very intentional about making sure that his kids were aware of of our history were aware of the struggles the sacrifices and um and so you know i think you know i Growing up as a kid, I was really intrigued by history and, and in particular, the journey of African-Americans. And so, so, you know, I I was pretty familiar, but again, it's fun to go back. I went back and reread his books, you know, to go back and read Huey Newton, to go back and read uh, Asada Shakur, read these books that you read in college or you read um, when, you know, when, when you're in high school, but to, but now you're kind of you're you're bringing it together with like life experience. You know those were those was when I was 20 years old. Now I'm like over 40, and to revisit those things, especially when we're in this time where we're still having a lot of the same conversations, is really compelling.
2: Mm. So you went to Berkeley. Yep. You majored in sociology. I did. You were a Hooper. So where my head goes immediately is the great sports sociologist who was at right. Berkeley for so many decades. So, the legendary Dr. Harry Edwards, Absolutely. Uh, d- did your yes. paths ever cross? Yeah.
3: So, I mean, we, so I believe it was my freshman year. He had stopped
2: teaching sociology of
3: sport. And up to that point, everyone was like, if you take one class at Berkeley, it has to be sociology of sport with Dr. Edwards. And I got there. He was no longer teaching it. I still took the class. It was a great, it was a great faculty member who did teach it, but, but he did teach a course on, on a, uh, on slave history or enslaved person's history. And Dave, it was, you know, it's like one of those things where it's, it's it's, you know, every day you're pinching yourself. You're in this classroom. You know, we were, I know myself and a couple of my teammates were lucky enough to get into the class. And so much of it is a performance, right? You're talking about this brilliant individual who like embodies so much of the journey of African-Americans and you, I, I remember it being a classroom experience where you could hear a pin drop everybody was just totally captured by everything he was saying so that was uh, that was you know that was it was an incredible experience for sure and i um you know his book you know his experiences, et cetera obviously were very influential on just the way i think about the world so
2: mm. you know uh adam McKay, the director and the, the mind behind winning time. He thinks I spoke to him before this interview. Uh, he thinks you are, he described you as a great actor, a natural, uh brilliant, this is Adam McKay. We're talking about dude puts out movies like I eat potato <laughs> chips. So is this something that you want to do going forward? Or is Absolutely. this for you the part? And then it's back to the classroom.
3: No, I, I would love to pursue acting. I, I mean, th- this is, realm you know when i think of when i think of how much i've been influenced by film tv theater etc um you know i i'm i'm eager to pursue a role in the space to kind of pay back a lot of what i've benefited from right so when i hear people talk about they've been touched by like my performance that means everything that means everything and, and i think it's it's uh there is it, it makes me want to work harder, learn more. I mean, I've, I've been really blessed because I've been able to work with a number of incredibly talented uh, acting coaches. But beyond that, you know, being on the set of Winning Time for two years, I'm around master actors. You know, masters of every the, the crew, the cast, et cetera. Everybody is exceptional at what they do, right? And again, you're working with um, the mind of Adam McKay. I, I I tell people, when I did my in-person audition, after I was done, um, and I was, I was leaving. I I, I stopped and I just, I just thanked them for the opportunity. I said, Adam, no matter what happens, regardless of whether I get this job, I just want you to know, I am an enormous, I'm an enormous fan of what you do for this world. Mm. And, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's like from the bottom of my heart. And so, you know, it's funny because I felt like there was this moment where I had, to, I had to like, really, as, as I was prepping for the audition, I was like, he was going to be in the room. And I was really excited about be, meeting Adam McKay, but there was like, there was the work that had to be done. I had to like, you know, really put myself out there and so so yeah i mean i, I would love to pursue it because there's so many stories dave you know this yeah. i mean a, again you so are many. right and so talking about people that have influenced me you are one of those people that has, have like deeply influenced me because the way you talk about sport the way you you, you bring so you bring into the conversation our history our culture etc like those are it's just you're you're an incredible storyteller and that's what you know for me that's what acting is it's being a part of these powerful stories these powerful narratives
2: that can change people's hearts and lives. Yeah, to put it mildly, there's so many stories that haven't been told. I read them in nonfiction form and I ask myself, where's the movie? And the answer often has to do with both not taking sports seriously, it has to do with not taking uh, movies with that center black actors seriously. Uh, And I think if we are moving beyond that, and there are at least some signs certainly and winning time is part of that, that we're moving beyond that, I think there's just potential for a, a an, an absolute renaissance mm. of tales from the world of athlete activism. But it's going to take actors who know how to play some very challenging individuals. And that's where I get to my next question for you because I think it would be very hard for even a seasoned actor to play Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because you know I've, I've met Kareem, I've interviewed Kareem. His emotions and his thoughts are so deeply internalized right. what has been your method what has been your thought process for sure. expressing the internal life
3: yeah so you know because because of covid there was a delay in in um completing season one so we filmed the pilot and then we had a lot of time off before we came back to film and up to that point night again i like went back and read his books um but that additional time just really gave me the opportunity to like even further immerse myself in in not only what he's written about himself but like the ecosystem that he came up in right so i wanted to learn more about harlem i wanted i, I'm, I was already a fan of jazz music but i just i mean i like that was the only thing i was listening to for for a year and you know reading about artists reading about their backgrounds his spiritual journey right like i started reading the quran um, you know, I'm Christian, I have Muslim friends, had lots of conversations with him. And uh, I just, it was like, I wanted to leave no stone unturned in terms of like, what are some of the things that potentially influenced this life, this this greatly lived life? Um, I, the other thing is, I think, you know, we, we really benefit from being in this YouTube era because I got really good at changing up the search terms. And I would find these interviews from like the 60s where he's you know he's talking to reporters and it was it was incredible. There's so much content about him, um, and you know seeing you know seeing the person the, the, essentially his journey from from his from his college years to who he is now. There's a lot of really really interesting and compelling content out there. Um, so I think I it was, uh, but even with that, even with that, Dave, it was. I, I feel like I, I just approached it with an immense amount of humility because to your point. I mean, he, he's he's going to go down as one of the most important Americans that's ever lived. I, I don't think there's any, any in the world, right? I, I don't think there's any debate about that. He's just lived such a full and influential life. And so, with that said, there's an immense amount of humility, even when I when I'm getting ready to step in front of camera. That I'm not. I can't. I obviously cannot perfectly portray this man, but I can just, out of gratitude, put forth my best effort. You know, I, I often tell people like. Because you know there has been, I know that he hasn't been a big fan of of the show, but I think the reality is this: I'm just one of a number of people, over time, that will step up to to be a part of his story, because the story is so massive, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I met a playwright a few years ago who was like working on a play about Kareem, and so it's like you know there's 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 I know that there are his, his stories, right? It's, his stories are just so so incredible, so I feel like. I'm just one of a many of many, I think, over time that will have stepped up to to, to try to play this role.
2: Yeah, and how, how do you wrestle with that? I said in in the introduction that, of course, that uh, I love the show. That yeah. a lot of the former Lakers, not fans of the show, to right. put it mildly. Right. Uh, and you're playing somebody you so clearly admire. Yeah. Who has publicly disavowed the show i'd love to hear your thought process about how you get your head around all of that and i'd love to know if there has been a subtle reach out from kareem's camp just to give you dap for doing (sighs) it so well
3: no 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 subtle reach out so you know well you know when kareem wrote when he wrote about it it was clear that he, he he said he he didn't watch it and so i think you know beyond the pilot And so i think i think there's that you know i think you you know it's it's uh if uh it, that's just the reality you know uh, the hope is that he'll give it a, 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 a shot at some point but um I think I think the reality is there's a lot of reverence an immense amount of reverence for him and and so you know it, it is something to wrestle with for sure it is I, every every actor that I talked to is like, like yeah, it's, it's tough playing somebody who's still living for sure um I think you know it's Spencer Haywood is another person whose story is immense yes and and he's shown appreciation for it right so that that means a lot right i think when you especially when you look at his journey what he came from and how pivotal that his decisions were to, in terms of changing the game of basketball changing the nba professional sports uh, workers rights etc so that was that was an immense blessing to know that he had watched it and he appreciated it um because he really is a central figure when you talk about the history of the nba and so wow. so i mean i think you know i think like anybody The hope is that he would give it a chance and he'd watch it and maybe have you know see our appreciation for him but if he doesn't you know it is it is what it is and uh it doesn't change the fact that you know we're we're all influenced by him we're all fans and and you know i i the other the other thing i i think in terms of like how you wrestle with it is i think i think it's hard for us to see how impactful we are beyond ourselves, right? We have like our mm-hmm. own first person experience. So Irvin Magic Johnson, Kareem abdul changed the world, right? And so I think the, the the idea that somebody would step up and try to tell their story, I'm like, buckle up. Like, I feel like, mm-hmm. th- th- just, just get ready. Like this is, when people learn more, because that, that's the other thing about this that's, that's so much fun is people will watch like, so I didn't know that and I went and read and I was blown away by that. I'm like, that's exactly right. They're so, th- they were, so influential and there's, there's, there's so many things that were, uh, you know, maybe I want to say taken for granted in terms of like what, what they started. I think, uh, you know, I, 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 I I can only imagine that it's hard to understand why someone would be that intrigued by your life. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but the reality is again, these men changed the world.
2: Absolutely. And we do a favor for future generations when we show them with three dimensions. Otherwise, all you're doing is saying to young people, look at this amazing person. You could never be them.
3: That's
1: right.
2: Instead yeah. of saying, look how amazing this person is. What can you learn from them?
3: I think that I think that's exactly right. And I think the other thing is, I think if there's concern over, you know, someone who might look at these men in that phase of their lives and be judgmental, I mean, that's the sanctimonious crowd that you're never going to please anyway, right? I mean, that's. Right. It's like you're 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 trying to please someone who is always gonna be judgmental, right? I think when you look at this and to your point, you see the three dimensions. You see these are humans who are, man, pursuing incredibly high goals in the midst of like incredibly challenging times. It's it's an incredibly compelling story.
2: Hmm. It is. And for what it's worth, uh the relationship between Kareem and Spencer Haywood, and in a way there's that kind of subtle generation gap between them and the younger players. Like they get it in a way. Magic's crew does not is one of my favorite parts about the show. And one of the most richly evocative parts about the show, because that tension was always there with that Lakers team, the unsmiling Kareem with the sixties backdrop and the new Jack magic with the smile that could light up a room. I mean, that tension is part of what makes it so compelling.
3: Right. right. And the fact that they were able to sustain that for so long and when, Five championships.
2: Oh, right. with love right. and appreciation. Right. I know. I know. That's it's the amazing man. part. Not trade me, right. but love and right. appreciation. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's get off winning time here for the rest of this. I, I have a couple <laughs> questions. I, I know it's a lot to talk yeah. winning time, but you know, sure. you played briefly for the Harlem Globe Trotters, and it, right. I'd love to hear about that in general. But you, sure. you're working on a script that brings together the modern issues of racism right. and policing that are so much a part of the the current conversation with a, a historical moment involving the Harlem Globetrotters. Can, can yeah. you speak about that? Because I, I read sure. a little bit of this. I thought yeah. it was brilliant. Yeah. Please. Uh, thank you,
3: Dave. Thank you. Yeah. You know, so I, I right after college, I didn't get drafted and I was kind of trying to figure out what was next. And the Globetrotters, they, they used to have a team that was essentially comprised of former NBA players and former college players who were aspiring to play professionally. And you would play like a series of games. I think it was 14 games against exhibition games against college teams. In a lot of ways, it just, it, you, you were basically touring the country and just making people aware that the, the team would be coming through with the generals later in the year. And, uh, you know, it's three months and I met the, some of the players I played with were really amazing people. Um, you know, but so it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a long stint, but it was just enough for me to just really be intrigued by the organization, by the history of the organization. And, and I tell people in the courses that I've taught about sport and race, there's always a component about the Globetrotters, because when you think about the way that they were used by the United States as essentially this commercial to show the world, everything is okay with black people. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, it's an incredibly, you know, you're talking about men who, you know, and this is before basketball had really really taken off so these this was like america's team right and mm-hmm. so um the the juxtaposition of of being you know black american men in the in the in the 40s in the 50s with so much celebrity but still you know there are there are these realities about the lives that you live in america when you're outside of your uniform and so you know what I wanted to do. So you know, so I, you know I, have, I have a few projects in mind, but with this 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 short film, it was re- capturing this incident that happened in 1983, where uh, three members of the Globetrotters were in Santa Barbara in between games, window shopping in downtown Santa Barbara, and they were racially profiled and held at gunpoint by the Santa Barbara police. And yeah. you know, I think it was Lou Dunbar. I think it was Lou Dunbar that said there was this moment where they were held at gunpoint and they were being ordered out of their taxi cab and this flip flop fell off. And you realize if I reach back for that, I'm dead. And it's just, you know, just that the, uh, that story, I tell people, you know, the number of of black men in my family that have been in similar situations with the police where one false move has lethal consequences, right? It's, uh, it's it's really it's it's absurd right it's absurd it's, it it is i think it's two things it's absurd but it's also it makes sense when you think about the history of this country the history of of race and policing etc and so um so i i'm i'm essentially retelling it in a fictionalized way that kind of captures the 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 sentiments of the 80s of the reagan era right because in the 80s you had very influential black athletes who wore Supporting Ronald Reagan and on his second term, and there's, there's, you know, the the complications of he presented this message of putting God first, right? And so I think that was strongly appealing to a lot of black folks who, who had connections to the church, et cetera. And so, but I think when you look back and you look at his legacy, right, it was it's all performative, right? I mean, putting God first looks a lot different. You know, within you're talking when you're putting God first, you're talking about justice, you're talking about you know, equity, you're talking about not, you know, abandoning cities, abandoning communities. And so, um, so I think, you know, I, I, I have a couple, I have a couple goal. I have a couple visions in mind for the, the Globetrotter story, because again, arguably America's most important um, sports team and, and, and the men, the, the amount of labor that they put into this, right, the, uh, to, to kind of sustain like this very, very um, important American tradition. I think it's, it's uh, it's a story that has to be told, and I and I'm I'm looking forward to getting this short film up and running, and then I have some longer term like feature ideas as well. So,
2: amazing, and you explore that contradiction really at the heart of the globe which is that they're this incredible expression of art and athleticism, right. and there's also the expectation that they be all about Americana, that they entertain, right. that they smile, right. In a country where they're being mistreated at oh gunpoint in Santa Barbara. Exactly. Like to to explore yeah. that, I mean, is is I think one of the great goals mm-hmm. of, of fiction and nonfiction oh. or or the kind of fictionally nonfiction expression, biopic art that you're becoming so accustomed to.
3: Yeah, no, I I, I totally agree. I think you know, you said that the their job was to smile and to entertain. You know, and again, when you look back, like YouTube again, YouTube has just been this great, just, just archival sort resource. You 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 find all of this footage where they're playing in these different cities, and and they're just delighting throngs of people, right? Hmm. And and then you know they they get on the bus, drive to the next city, do it again, and it's like just talking about the, the the labor and um and and the contradictions of the realities that they were facing as black men in America. I think it's yeah.
2: Amazing. Uh, Solomon Hughes, you've been so generous with your time. How can people keep up with you and the, shall we say giant steps you'll be taking? (laughs) Love that. Uh, you know,
3: I'm, I'm, so I'm on Instagram right now, but I am thinking about like creating a website that, uh, kind of captures some more of my, like my visions and my goals in terms of how I want to impact this space. But Solomon Young Hughes at Solomon Young Hughes is, is where people can find me online right now on Instagram.
2: Amazing. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time. I really Absolutely. appreciate
3: it. Absolutely. Thanks for having and, me.
2: And should we call you Dr. Hughes? Can Solomon, I call you Dr. Sol- Hughes?
3: Solomon is perfectly fine.
2: All right. You got okay. it. Thanks so much, Solomon. Wow. That was Solomon Hughes. But now I got some choice words. Okay, look. In the early 1970s, the Oakland A's were a dynasty winning three straight World Series, led by players like Reggie Jackson, Raleigh Fingers, and Jim Catfish Hunter. They also had a 12-year-old kid from the streets of Oaktown who entertained the clubhouse with his dancing moves. This kid's name was Stanley Burrell, and he had an uncanny resemblance to the great home run king Hammer and Hank Aaron. So they called him Hammer. Stanley Burrell took that on as his dancing name, and 15 years later, became known to the world as MC Hammer. I tell that story because it speaks to how woven this team is into our collective culture. But I also tell that story because it would not have happened if they were the Idaho A's or the San Antonio A's or, yes, the Las Vegas A's. Because the Ballad of the Funky Headhunter, a.k.a. MC Hammer, is not an A's story. It's not even a baseball story. It's an Oakland story. Hell, the unlikely start of Hammer's career is an Oakland legend, as sure as Huey Newton and Bobby Seale putting out the first issue of The Black Panther Speaks while listening to Bob Dylan's Ballad of a Thin Man is an Oakland legend, a legend rooted in a truth that perhaps can only be found in Oaktown. And this is because of Oakland that this team, the A's, has given us more legendary people and moments than we have had any right to expect. The Bash brothers, Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco, the famous 20-game winning streak with one of the most inexpensive rosters in the sport, and a World Series in 1989 that literally cracked the earth open. But now, because a billionaire franchise owner who made his fortune by inheriting a sweatshop empire, as well as a Major League Baseball commissioner who really seems to hate the sport of baseball, the A's are looking to be leaving Oakland to go to a publicly funded paradise in the Las Vegas desert. I've had much to say over the years about how these sweetheart stadium deals fleece taxpayers and the poor, about how publicly funded arenas are nothing but monuments to corporate greed, about how economists say you'd be better off dropping a billion dollars from a plane and letting people pick up the money and spend it than using the money for a sports complex. This is not a debate. It's a fact. And academics have been putting out the data that proves this For decades, but for the very powerful, these stadium deals are pure gold, a magical alchemy that takes public funds and after being laundered through sports, becomes private profit. I have much to say about all of this. And to the working people of Vegas, I am so sorry. I am sorry for your schools and hospitals and parks. I am sorry for what is about to happen to you. But I want to focus here not on the Oakland franchise owner, Gap clothing heir, John Fisher. I'm not going to focus on the way he sold off every decent player on the team to drive down attendance and then cry poverty in order to facilitate this move. I'm not going to focus on him. He's nothing, a garbage bag stuffed with spam, doing exactly what he was told. I want to focus on the person pulling his strings, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred. It was Manfred who did not want a privately funded deal to build a new stadium in Oakland. And it was Manfred who decided that pilfered tax dollars from Vegas mattered more than decades of loyalty and support given by the people of Oakland to this franchise. I also want to focus on Manfred because this past week, in an interview with my man June Lee over at ESPN, he exposed his character, and it's rotten to the core. He showed himself not only prepared to gut a great baseball town, but kick it in the teeth on the way out the door. Listen to these comments. The injury is bad enough, the insults far worse, and the lies unendurable. On the A's relocation, he said, the real question is, what was Oakland prepared to do? There is no Oakland offer, okay? They never got to a point where they had a plan to build a stadium at any site. And it's not just on John Fisher. The community has to provide support. This, as the Oakland mayor's office pointed out immediately before that quote even hit the airwaves, is simply not true. There were numerous plans on the table, just not one as a wash in public money as the Vegas plan. Manfred was also asked about a recent event where fans filled the stands in protest of the move to Vegas and what was being called a reverse boycott. To that, Manfred smirked and said, I mean, it was great. It is great to see what is this year almost an average Major League Baseball crowd in the facility for one night. That's a great thing. And when June Lee pointed out to Manfred that studies say that stadiums do not generate significant local economic growth, he shrugged it off with this pithy observation. Academics can say whatever they want. Ugh. Look, this isn't a baseball commissioner. It's a sports radio caller. It's a YouTube commenter. And it's more evidence that no one dislikes the game of baseball in all its pageantry and joy than Rob Manfred, the Grinch of the national pastime. But comparing him to a Dr. Seuss character is too kind. He's more like Gordon Gecko from the movie Wall Street. Greed is good, and anything that gets in the way of greed is inherently bad. That movie came out in 1987, and if we've learned anything since then in this age of decay, It's that greed isn't good. Greed destroys communities. Greed destroys small towns. Greed destroys I-95. And greed is destroying our cities. And publicly funded stadiums is one of the ways they do it. They take all the joy and community cohesion that baseball can create and use it like a club to attack and alienate the most vulnerable. The very people whose love has made the game everything it is. It's obscene. Rob Manfred is killing this team. Its future will no longer be in the hearts of the Oakland faithful. Instead, they will be in the Vegas desert to be buried with the rest of the bodies. And now we have the part of the show we call Ask a Sports Scholar, where we ask someone from the world of sports research about what they have learned and what they can teach us. And I'm so proud this week to bring on Professor Amira Rose Davis. Now we pre-recorded this because in addition to being a brilliant scholar, I'm not sure anyone's life is busier. But here she is, she made the time, she has much to teach, Dr. Amira Rose Davis. Our next scholar is University of Texas Professor Amira Rose Davis. And I'm so excited to have her on the show, total rockstar. Uh, professor Davis is an assistant professor in the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas, Austin, where she specializes in 20th century American history with an emphasis on race, gender, sports, and politics. She is finishing up her first book, something that I have been waiting for for some time, Can't Eat a Metal, The Lives and Labors of Black Women Athletes in the Age of Jim Crow. Amira Davis, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here.
2: Oh, I I want you to start, please, by talking about the sports and the angle on those sports. That's your primary area of study.
1: Yeah, so I really look at many sports. My primary focus is looking at the long history of Black women's athletic involvement. Um, And so in my book, for instance, it spans the beginning of the 20th century, right around the 1900s. All the way up to the early days of title IX in the 1970s i also of course as you know do contemporary work along the same themes but because of that focus i get to talk about so many sports because black women have played and continue to play a wide variety of of sports so tennis golf uh roller derby many olympic sports especially track and field basketball of course boxing bowling baseball. Um, So that's one of the best things I like about my focus of study is if there's a black woman somewhere playing it, I get to kind of jump into that sport for a little while.
2: You know, as you speak, I'm reminded of a line in Bill Roden's book, $40 million slaves, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said the most striking part about the history of black athletics with regards to women is how little of it has been recorded. How are you able to find the data to put together a book on this?
1: Absolutely, I mean, I think that it was a topic um, and and perhaps still remains today that is assumed to have scarcity, assumed to have um, breadcrumbs. And a lot of that is because there's not one Dedicated archive, especially if you're thinking about operating as a historian going into archival spaces. There's not an archive that's like, "This is the history of Black women in sports." Read here, um, and that means you're looking for breadcrumbs. But luckily, I was trained up and and come from a lineage of Black women historians who know how to get that history by searching broad and wide and in depth in certain places. So for me specifically, Black newspapers have been a huge resource. The Black print media long reported on Black women in sports. They included their scores, there was uh, fluff pieces, there was in-depth articles about them um, throughout the 20th century, so I used those. I relied a lot on oral histories, both oral histories that had been recorded over the years, as well as oral histories I conducted myself over the last decade. Um, In addition to those materials, I do a lot of textual analysis. So a lot of times, even if there's not words describing black women's history in sports, what there is is a lot of pictures. Um, Mm -hmm. And so analyzing pictures and sometimes moving video and cobbling together all of these things, oftentimes I'll just like leave this example on the table there'll be like a history of black women. And if you look deeply and you ask the right questions, you realize there's descriptions of their athletic careers in there, whether they were not necessarily an elite athlete, they didn't necessarily go to the Olympics. But part of what I was trying to find in the book is what the larger landscape of black athletic participation on the women's side looked like and so sometimes it's a neighborhood game or sometimes it's somebody describing that they played volleyball for years um, and finding those scraps within larger stories or within papers of their brothers or their fathers or on the little box on the page that nobody's caring to read is really how i found these voices and i and i hope to place them at the center of my work
2: mm, a counterintuitive question for you did black women actually have more space and more freedom to play different sports in the early 20th century than white women may have had?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things, well, some white women. So basically what you have some
2: white women at maybe.
1: the beginning of the 20th century is absolutely an expansion of opportunities for black girls and women that um, doesn't look the same in terms of white women, especially if you're looking at, say, the Seven Sister Schools, Smith College, the kind of In proper places. You might have golf, you might have tennis, but there was a concerted effort to focus on play days, calisthenics, things that weren't too strenuous. Um, And so we see a disruption to that mentality in white ethnic women. So um, it's no surprise that some of our earliest track and field stars are Babe Dietrichson from my hometown of Beaumont, Texas, for instance, German immigrant, Polish immigrant, like Stella, Stella Walsh, right? These ethnic immigrants had enclaves that expanded athletic opportunities as well. And for African-American women, it was no different. There was a a feeling in the community that muscular assimilation, the idea that you could prove your fitness for citizenship, you could prove that you were equal uh, to broad society through success through that black excellence. And that extended to black women, especially if they were ever in competition with white women. And through that mentality, what we saw was the development of of athletics at the neighborhood level, as well as the school and the collegiate level. And so just a quick stat to kind of ground you with that. By the 1940s, um, about 85% of of colleges for white women that served white women were opposed to varsity athletics. While Mm -hmm. 75% of black colleges encouraged or supported varsity athletics for Black women. So you see there's a huge disparity in institutionalized opportunities.
2: Mm, You know, you came at this subject with a real knowledge base, but what's something you've learned through writing this book that's really surprised you?
1: Yeah, so I think that when I came at this, I was looking for stories. uh, And what I realized I was really doing is writing a labor history, particularly about symbol. What I've learned and what I've been particularly attuned to is the way that beyond just their athletic careers, Black women athletes take on these broader cultural meanings. as as symbols that are kind of conduits for debates. We see this with Serena Williams. We know it in the contemporary sense. I think the biggest thing that I've learned and continue to learn from these stories in my project is just how long that history is. Whether it's a long history of their athletic activism or a long history of how their symbol, Uh, their personhood has been used for political, social, you know, cultural means by other people. Um, I don't necessarily know if it was a surprise, but I think I'm constantly a student of the ways in which their bodies um, get projected on.
2: You know, I really want to teach uh, the people watching this show something that maybe they didn't know before, something very basic and straight up. Can can you tell uh, my watchers, my listeners, can you tell them who Roseanne Robinson was?
1: Absolutely. E. Rosanna Robinson, Rose Robinson, uh, was a Chicago uh, multi-sport athlete, actually. Her and her two sisters were dominant in track and field and volleyball, uh, among basketball, among other things. But Rose really rose to prominence um, through track and field, specifically as a high jumper. At the 1959 Pan American Games in Chicago, right, she refuses to stand to the for the anthem she has a long career of um using her athletic um background to fuel activism so actually as a member of core um she in in cleveland she led efforts in a skating rink a skate in which is like a sit in but you're skating to desegregate mm-hmm a place. And one of the reasons she was so effective is because she was so agile, she could evade capture as they were trying to desegregate a skating rink in Cleveland. What she's perhaps most known for is a time in which making the national uh, track and field team, she was asked, along with many Black athletes, to tour the world in this kind of soft power propaganda effort from the U.S. State Department. She declined that offer very publicly, saying she has no desire to be a pawn in those political games. And about six months later, she was imprisoned on tax evasion charges. She was thrown in jail where she staged a hunger strike. You see pictures of her trial where she's being carried in because she's so emaciated from the hunger strike that she can't walk. She writes about the hunger strike and saying her athletic training has prepared her for this. She looked at it like practice. She looked at it and drew upon the same resource that she does when she's training her body for athletic events to prepare and sustain a hunger strike. Um, This was over uh, what's basically... $300 roughly um, today. And and so that's one of the ways we see her athletic activism um, intersecting with her peace activism, her work as somebody who's trying to desegregate places. She would ride her bike up and down Route 40 to desegregate diners in in her later years of life. And it's just one of these stories, right, that sometimes we miss Um, But that helps us really understand not only the long history of athletic activism, but how her understanding, like her broader family, her, she had a sister who went to the 1948 Olympics, right? Her, her sister's childhood flaunts on the schoolyard, all the opportunities they had to be the Robinson sisters from Chicago who could beat you at every sport is not only an indication of her athletic activism that would happen in later life, but those broad opportunities that we just discussed for Black women to be involved in sports and have a platform in which to stand on, to speak out.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that she's also very important when we speak about Kaepernick today to say that, wait a minute, protesting during the anthem has a history that arises out of the contradictions of being a Black athlete in the United States.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. You know, you're great talking about your areas of study and you've educated so many people about a topic that we really need to know more about. But I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the push in the Texas House to eliminate tenure from UT and other public universities. What's the stake of that fight right now and how does it affect you as a professor?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're living in scary times. It's not just happening in Texas, although that's ca- capturing a lot of headlines, but we're seeing this really assault on higher education across the country. Uh, here in the Texas uh, state, house, we've been down at the Capitol a lot, we had a, a, a testimony session on Monday that went into the wee hours of the morning. Everybody came in, coming out opposed to Senate Bill 18, which would uh, eradicate tenure here. Um, I've likened it to... Texas and their weather grid and their ability to say, oh, we want an independent grid and then we all freeze seemingly once a year. Um, That's what this would do for the University of Texas and and the rest of the higher education systems and and colleges and universities in the state. Um, Eradicating tenure, which protects academic freedom, which allows time for innovative research to occur, which protects your right to do things like be critical of big athletic departments or uh, be critical of international politics. Um, those are the concerns on the table. I think one of the bigger concerns is that this was tied in with an anti-DEI bill and a critical race theory bill. It's very much culture wars 101. Um, and the threat came because the faculty senate at the University of Texas Austin affirmed the right of professors to have academic freedom to do their research and also to teach classes on race, on gender, um, on sexuality, et cetera. Um, And the Lieutenant Governor didn't like that um, and also saw a great opportunity to rile up constituents. Um, And so literally, when we're talking about tenure, we can't detach it from these broader kind of concerns about DEI because they're very much being paired together. They want to eliminate tenure so that people who teach about race and gender and ethnicity and people who talk about the long history of of power in this country and how it manifests and say words like white supremacy and say words like homophobia or transphobia, um, you know, it's very much an attack on that. And so the stakes are really high, not only because it kind of severs us from the national higher education landscape, although like I said, this is something that's happening across the country, but we're already seeing a brain drain. It's something that I'm, I'm proud to work at the University of Texas, Austin. I think that our departments are amazing. Some of the, the work being done here is so innovative. Um, the students are phenomenal and the diversity that is at the university is, is a credit to it. It's why it's so good. Um, and so seeing efforts to attack that have been really disheartening. Um, and something that we are all kind of ten toes on the ground fighting. Um, but, you know, call your you can call, you can help, you can post, you continue. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, not only here, if you live in Virginia, looking at UVA, looking at UNC and in, in the North Carolina schools, Florida, obviously, um, you know, so just continuing to have that kind of national awareness. I always say it's very easy for people up east to say, oh, that's Texas, oh, that's Florida, or post a meme about cutting, seeding them out of the nation. But if it's happening anywhere, it's happening in this nation. And so um, understand that we're fighting on the ground, but continuing to pay attention to what we're doing and, and sending support is much needed.
2: Absolutely, and if we haven't figured out yet that state lines are no impediment to these laws spreading, then we have truly learned nothing. You see people, I told you she was a rock star. Uh, <laughs> Professor Davis, Amira Rose Davis, however you would like to be referred to. Thank you so much for appearing here on Edge of Sports.
1: Yeah, thanks, Davis. great to see. Congrats on the show and everything you do. It's great to see you always.
2: Great to see you too.
0: That was awesome. Drake fans, our favorite level boy is coming to town, and I know you want tickets. Well, the GameTime app has you covered. Couldn't get past those crazy ticket queues? GameTime has incredible last-minute deals and the lowest price guaranteed. And you can see the view from your seat right on your phone. Score last-minute tickets for the It's All a Blur tour today. Both new and existing GameTime users can use code BLUR for $20 off. That's B-L-U-R for $20 off Drake tickets for all GameTime users. Terms apply.